The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. And uh, I would invite you to open to that passage in Romans chapter 12 as we'll be focusing particularly on the first two verses of chapter 12 uh, and we, as we uh, continue the series for, for this semester. Um, it is good to see so many uh, guests here today. We are, as has already been said, praying for you and uh, students. We know we're heading into that uh, time in the semester where we're turning the corner into the final leg. There's a lot to do and we're praying for you every day as well. But it's good to have a full house here on this Friday, uh, on this Veterans Day. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, are there any veterans in the house? If you're here and a veteran, would you please uh, stand so we can say thank you to you for your service. We have one in the back. Thank you. Bill, you raise your hand. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. And we're thankful for all of you guests who are here on this Veterans Day to, to visit the university. Uh, this uh, fall, I've been uh, working through this series, which we've entitled, No Matter What, What Christians Do Regardless of Context or Circumstances. And so today I want to bring what is the third installment. We've looked at the issue of believing. We as Christians believe no matter what, no matter what our circumstances. Uh, we were drawing upon uh, even the university verse where the prophet uh, who is undergoing a great deal of strain and stress and despairing, reminds himself of the steadfast love of God, the mercies of God, which are new every morning. That, uh, that, that biblical idea that we believe, we believe and hold firm our faith no matter what. And then last time we looked at the issue of rejoicing, that passage in Philippians that exhorts us to rejoice always. And again, the apostle says, rejoice Today I want to continue this idea of no matter what, what Christians do regardless of context or circumstances, but I want to just say the reason that this matters, and I outlined this at the beginning of the semester, there are two reasons that I wanted to focus on this, uh, this term. Uh, one is that we, we live in a day and age where we are being pushed by our context and our circumstance with regard to the way we think and exercise our Christianity. The temptations, the pressures are great to sort of begin to yield or capitulate on the things that Christians do. That somehow, either, either in terms of the circumstances of life in a culture that says when it gets to be too overwhelming, uh, crawl into your own sort of state of despair and, and give up or quit. We don't do that as Christians. And the context begins to push us to say our ideas are out of date, out of step, irrelevant. Uh, we say no, the, the timeless truths of the Bible are just that. They are timeless and we hold to them no matter what. But there's also the other idea that there's this, this idea inherent in the scripture when it talks about God's people and actually the Lord himself, that there's this steadiness that is a part of our experience as God's people. In fact, the, the university verse from Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He is that steadfast God. We refer to Jesus as what? The rock the cornerstone upon which the church is built. There's a, there's a steadiness to it. We're exhorted in Scripture to be people who are even-keeled, who are not given to whims, who are not pushed by their emotions. In fact, James says we're not even to doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, pushed and driven by the wind. 
There is this idea that in our Christian walk, there is to be exhibited a degree of steadiness. It's not to say that our context isn't challenging or our circumstances at time aren't overwhelming. The question is, what are those things as Christians that we do no matter what? We looked at the issue of believing. We looked at the issue of rejoicing. And I want to today call our attention to this idea that no matter what, we think Christianly. We think Christianly. We, we bring the Bible to bear on the way we understand God ourselves and the world in which we live. No matter what is going on around us, no matter what is happening in our lives, we are to maintain a Christian mind. We are to hold to that idea that we think Christianly. Now, the whole notion of this series is that as Christians, we're called and commanded to do certain things regardless of our circumstances or context. Likewise, there are things we're exhorted uh, to do and things that are expected of us. And these aren't meant to repress us or to control us. They are in the Bible for our benefit. And one of these is to think Christianly, to possess and to exercise a Christian mind. To have a Christian mind, to think Christianly about ourselves and the world in which we find ourselves is not simply an intellectual state or even an intellectual exercise. This passage of scripture makes it very clear it's an essential to our spiritual lives and to our service to the Lord himself. The passage that was read makes this clear. Paul's appealing to his brothers in the Lord by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Now as a result of that, you should not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is an essential to our spiritual lives. It is not something separate from for years, we've, we've talked around this issue of, of what it means for us as Christians to wrestle with issues of mind and heart. And I've shared in here on a number of occasions, there are those of us that want to say, well, I'm not a mind Christian, I'm a heart Christian. And other people say, I'm not really an emotional person, I'm not a heart Christian, I'm a mind Christian. This, the scripture doesn't give you that luxury. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You don't have the luxury of dividing, saying, well, I'm more oriented towards emotion than I am towards reason. We are, we are to be Christian, thoroughly Christian in the way we think about God ourselves and the world in which we live. It is an essential element of our faith and spiritual life. In fact, what the apostle is saying here to these Christians in Rome is you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. All of the doctrines that are outlined in that great epistle to the Roman Christians, they're all true. And then the issue is that these things then are to have a bearing, not just on the way you think about yourself as a Christian. Look, I've, I've gotten my ticket punched. I'm standing in the right line. I will, I will, I, I've got my pass for heaven. I identify as a Christian. No, that's not it. It is that your whole life and your whole being is to be committed to the spiritual service to the Lord, including the life of the mind. And so this issue is, is imperative for us as Christians. Paul is not putting this out here as an, an option or a choice. It's not an, a, a matter of an a la carte menu that you can decide for yourself if this one applies to you. It's an exhortation written down for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are to be transformed by the renewal of of our minds. It's also true that to think Christianly isn't simply to ascribe to a list of beliefs that we identify as being Christian. It means that our judgments, our evaluations, our reasoning 
even our ideas and our values, the things that we think are important, are to be informed by and measured against biblical truth and teaching. That's the Christian way. And so this is what it means is that all of those things, the way we evaluate the world around us and others and ourselves, the judgments that we form, the things that we think matter, the things that we think are true, all of that is to be informed by and measured against the Bible and the truth and teaching that is included in it. It's why it's such an essential part of the curriculum at Cairn University. It's not so that people will identify us as having come from a, a Bible college tradition in the 20th century. It's not even really just to make other people happy. It's because we believe it's essential to your spiritual formation because the formation of a Christian mind is an essential to our spiritual lives. But we should make no mistakes. There are challenges to maintaining a Christian mind. To, to consistently thinking Christianly about life, ideas, others, and ourselves. And we must not only be aware of these challenges, but we must be wise and diligent in how we navigate them. And the Apostle Paul writes down for us here one of the greatest challenges to maintaining a Christian mind. In fact, as he's writing to these Christians in Rome a very cosmopolitan culture, an idea full of ideas and sensibilities and, and political leanings and cultural issues and, and, and religious issues and philosophical influences. He's writing to a group of people who are not living under a rock. They are living in Rome. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing to those Christians in Rome, provides us a very concise summary of the importance of thinking Christianly and addresses what I think is one of the primary challenges to doing so. Following this Romans doxology where he outlines the depth and riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God and talks about the, the, the uniqueness of God's judgments, that his thinking is completely different. It echoes the words that Isaiah writes in chapter 55 where he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, for my thoughts are higher than yours, as are my ways. The, that God, the God's, way of, God's way of thinking and God's way is different than our own, it's higher than our own. And the Apostle Paul, before encouraging us and exhorting us to maintain a Christian mind, actually outlines the tremendous wisdom that God possesses, which he says is unsearchable and inscrutable. It's to drive us in our Christian minds to a posture of humility that God knows best. That's, that's an incredibly important idea in, a, in an age and a culture where every sense of meaning and truth is determined by us as individuals or as the reader of something. How many Bible studies have you been in where people say, oh, here's a verse, what does it mean to you? That's dangerous ground. The question is, what does it mean? Well, what does the gospel mean to you? Well, the gospel means something whether you think it means that or not. What does the authority of God mean to you? Well, it means something whether you embrace it and acknowledge it or not. God is the maker and sustainer of all things, the judge of the world. That is true regardless of whether you believe it to be true or not. But in a day and age where everything is centered on the individual, we will determine what is meaningful. We will determine what is important. We will determine what is true. The Apostle Paul was writing to people who were in a very similar cultural context, and he begins this, this exhortation to maintain a Christian mind by reminding them of the inscrutable and unsearchable wisdom of God. 
And that is an important posture to take into this work of establishing and maintaining a Christian mind. And Paul is not writing to a group of Christians living under a rock or in a cave somewhere. He's writing to Christians that are inundated in a culture that is extremely secular in its orientation. And he writes to them that they are to be careful and that they are to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. The passage that Dean Swift read for us is where I'd like to focus our attention specifically on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. When you look at this passage, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You have been bought with a price. The sacrifice of yourself on this altar is holy and acceptable because of the work of Jesus Christ. You've been bought with a price, redeemed by his blood. You are forgiven. You are given the promise of eternal life. You are a new creature. As a result of that, your life is to be lived for him, and this is your spiritual act of worship. But then he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The impact of thinking Christianly is clear enough here. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we see that thinking Christianly, possessing a Christian mind, enables us to test and to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect in accordance with God's will and way. I would like to assert here, and I know there are people who will disagree, that this passage is not saying that if you do this, God will make it clear whom you are to marry, where you are to live, or what job you are to have. The passage seems clear enough to me that the possession of a Christian mind, the, 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 the rejection of the pattern of the world, the, the work of renewing our minds and being transformed by it means that we will be able to judge what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I will tell you this, that the thinking of the world is actually questioning now more than any time in my lifetime what is good and acceptable and perfect. The assault on the judgment between not just right and wrong and good and evil, but that there's anything that is discernible about distinguishing something that is good from something that is better, from something that is best, is out the window. If you think good is enough, then that's fine. You don't need to struggle, struggle and strive for better or best. But those of you who are athletes and artists and those of you who take your studies seriously, know that's not the case. There is the bare minimum and then there is the best. There is this issue of being able to discern what is good and acceptable and right and perfect. That's what the Christian mind does for us. It isn't just that, that somehow God's will will open for us in a circumstantial way. It's that our judgments will be affected in a positive and powerful way. The impact is clear enough. This will change the way we live in this world because it changes the way we think in this world. In fact, I think this passage makes it very clear that to think Christianly is transformational. How do I know that? Because he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That it requires the renewing of our mind to think differently than we thought before we came to faith and to think differently from the world around us that does not acknowledge God and his truth. This is the power of it. And this thinking Christianly is transformational. It requires the renewing of our mind. It is an active process with powerful effect. It does not happen by accident, and it is no small thing. I think the temptation is to think, well, 
I know people who like theology and they like philosophy and they like apologetics and I'm not one of those people so I don't really need to apply those things to my life. What Paul is doing is saying this is a direct impact on your spiritual life to be able to tell the difference between the things that are good and the things that are not. The things that are acceptable to God and the things that are not. The things that are perfect and the things that are not. This all of us need. Whether you enjoy theology and apologetics and all of those things or not, this is the Christian life. You must think about it Christianly. You must exercise your mind in a responsible way. This we do always, regardless of our context or circumstances. You think about all the things that crowd into your life, all the temptations or all the things that discourage you or all your apprehensions or your fears or your insecurities. I would make the argument that if we trace them back, somewhere in there is a failure to think God's thoughts about those things. Think about this. Think about how easy it is to hold a grudge and to want to get even. We hold on to it such that it cripples us. All we want to do is, is hold on to the fact that we were wrong or believe we were wronged, that someone did ill to us, and we hold on and we don't forgive and we don't let go and we want, the, the, we want to hold that grudge and we want to get even, we want to see the other person pay for what they've done, and the question is, is that biblical thinking? Well, the answer is very clear. It's not. So if that's actually tripping you up, if you think about this, you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. We're, 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 we're human beings in a world where we're, we struggle with the reality of physical things and sexual things. So it's natural that we would be tempted by those things. Except that believing that, that passive gratification in any way, in any of your appetites, is okay to pursue is to not think biblically. Not think biblically. To, to actually think about members of the opposite sex in objective ways is to miss the beauty of what God did in creating us one for another according to his perfect plan. It's wrong thinking. And so the Christian mind isn't something that just we do as an intellectual exercise. It affects the way we think about almost everything in life. Actually, not almost, everything in life. Everything in life. When I think on this passage and when thinking about the exhortation to be transformed by the renewing of our minds for the purpose of discernment, it seems important to me that we be honest with ourselves and ask the question, do we want this? Because I think in moments of sheer honesty, what we might say is, I don't. I don't want to be that different from the world around me. I don't want to do that work. I much prefer the sort of personal, passive uh, pleasure-seeking and gratification that's part of my world right now. It's much more enjoyable to me to think about myself than to think about others. It's much easier for me to judge others according to my own standards rather than God's standards. It's much easier for me to think about seeking my own interest than the interest of others. I don't really want this Christian mind. But it seems to me we have to ask ourselves, do you want this? And if the answer is yes, the following question is, what will it require of you to get it? And if the answer is other than yes, I think it's important that we ask ourselves why. Why is it that we don't actually want to be possessing of a Christian mind? What are the things that we don't want to give up? What are the things that we don't want to submit to the will of God, which is outlined here in verse 2? 
What are the ways in which we want to control these aspects of our lives? We don't want to yield our sensibilities and judgments, the way we evaluate things, the way we think about ourselves and others and the world in which we live. I think that Romans 12 calls us to something really significant and powerful. But I think it also presents perhaps the greatest challenge to thinking Christianly because it makes a sharp contrast between the Christian mind and the secular mind. The Apostle Paul warns his readers to not conform to the pattern of this world. In the context of the verse, it is clearly dealing with the world's way of thinking. I have shared this with you before here. Our university, like so many other universities within the Christian tradition, has some things in its history about conforming to the patterns of the world that are a little bit silly when you think about them today. There were prohibitions against facial hair, which means I'm out. There were prohibitions about dancing, which means I'm out. There were prohibitions about wearing white socks with dark shoes. I'm still in. There were all kinds of prohibitions about outwardly conforming to the image of the world so that we didn't look like Elvis. But those outward things can be brought into conformity and we can avoid conforming to the pattern of the world when we're thinking about those external things and be rotting from the inside out by having a secular mind. What the Apostle Paul is doing here in saying don't be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind is drawing that sharp contrast that says we should be very careful not to conform to the world's way of thinking. To do the hard work of being aware of the ways in which the world's thinking is influencing us and to be careful not to allow it to affect our judgments and sensibilities but rather to renew our minds, to think after the thoughts of God, to be saturated with the truths of his word and to come into submission to his authority and the authority of scripture, trusting that it can be relied upon, that it is without error, that it is incapable of leading us to error, that it is authoritative and brothers and sisters, that it is sufficient. The exhortation to not conform to the pattern of this world is one of those no matter what's in the Bible no matter what our circumstances or our context or the prevailing thinking of the age or our culture, we are to resist conforming to a way of thinking and judging that is not biblical. Now, when I think about this, there is no end. I actually tried to get to one this week. There is no end to the implications of Romans 12.2. The ways in which we may be conforming to the pattern of this world are numerous and complex. Some are subtle and some are blatant. The only way to stay aware, to be diligent and vigilant in guarding our minds and hearts, is to do the hard work required to have a renewed mind and think Christianly. Think about this. Just came through an election. If we think that politics is the source of what is wrong in the world, or we think that politics is the answer to what is wrong in the world, we are thinking unchristianly. We are thinking unchristianly. The evils of this world are rooted in sin in the fall. The answer for sin in the fall is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. It isn't that politics doesn't matter in the affairs of this world. It isn't that there are no implications of it. For crying out loud, I teach 80 of you in a government class twice a week. I care about this stuff. But make no mistake, 
I do not think that that is the problem with the world or the thing that will fix the world. If we think that it is appropriate for us to express every emotional reaction to everything we encounter in an unfiltered way, regardless of the impact on others, we are thinking according to the pattern of the world and not God's way. If we are driven by our emotional reactions to things, if we are pushed to the point where we believe that our personal pleasure, and I would argue in this culture, passive pleasure, where you just sit back and are titillated and entertained, and that's the most important thing in your life, that is not the Christian way to think about yourself and life. There is work to be done, good work to be done, that requires you setting your hand to a plow to do things for the glory of God under his grace and his sustaining power for his purposes, not your own. If you're living for your own purposes and your own pleasure, that is the world's way of thinking. It is not Christian thinking. If you are looking at your life saying, what's the bare minimum I can do? We all have varying levels of ability. I told my students on the first day, your, your grade, your performance, it's A times E, ability times effort. We have little control over our ability. We're born with certain proclivities and dispositions and gifts and abilities. The variable you control is effort. But if you think that life is to be lived only getting by doing the bare minimum, not putting yourself out there, not taking risks, not striving, not trying, not working hard, I assure you that is not biblical thinking. To think Christianly requires this, this effort to be careful how the pattern of the world is influencing our judgment and sensibilities. There's no end to those implications. Think about your relationships. If you believe that loving someone in a romantic relationship is about what you get out of it, you're missing the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13. It does not seek its own interests or its own desires. It is other-oriented. Men, if you want to, to love a woman the way you're to love your wife, you must be willing to give all, sacrifice yourself as Christ loved the church. Not fulfill your own desires and fantasies. It's other-oriented. Love is other-oriented. The world would tell you love is what makes you happy. The Bible tells you love is your desire to give to another. The world would tell you that wisdom is found in secular source, that it's, it's, that it's the accumulation of degrees or knowledge or, or facts and data. The truth is wisdom is submitting yourself to the first principle of it, which is the fear of the Lord. Everything downstream of, of, of that it leads to wisdom. If you, but if you believe that wisdom is something that, that you possess and control that is somehow void of this understanding of submitting yourself to who God is, you will fail every time. That's the world's thinking, not God's thinking. Regardless of our circumstances or context, we are to think Christianly. No matter what, we are to think Christianly. The work the work of being vigilant and diligent is not easy. But let me say this. You're given a tremendous privilege and opportunity to be at a place like this, where this is, this is all we're about. Your whole days are structured in studying and thinking about all kinds of things, your professional studies, your liberal studies, your biblical studies, how it all fits together to shape and to form a Christian mind. Your community life is to be shaped that way, that the way you are thinking about your own process of being discipled and submitting to the will of God and treating one another well and in a Christian way, all of it fits together and ties together. 
Now you are here with the opportunity to, to, to develop those muscles and to shape your Christian mind. And I would challenge you again, if you're sitting here wondering, oh, that's not, I don't really think I want that, then ask yourself why not, because it's what God wants for you. And if you do want it, then let's work together to encourage one another to keep after it. Years ago, I had a colleague who was, uh, who was in a leadership position here who would say this to us all the time, you practice like you play. Here you are, you're in college, you're studying and learning. Trust me, the level of effort that you put into maintaining a consistent, integrated Christian life and to maintaining your, your, your thinking as uniquely Christian and biblical the degree to which you take that seriously here is the degree to which you will take it seriously after graduation. And the church, the world, and society, and the families that you will raise need you to take it seriously. God wants you to take it seriously. So, let's do it. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your word, which is living and active and divides between joint and marrow. We thank you for the truth that it contains and we pray for the grace to receive it, to understand it, and to submit to it. Father, we pray that you would impress upon us the importance of thinking Christianly no matter what, that you would give us the wisdom and desire to be vigilant in how we are being influenced by the context in which we live, the way we are being pushed by our personal circumstances. And we pray for the ability to be diligent in maintaining a Christian mind. Father, I ask that you would give these students and the prospective students that are here today who may join us next year the desire, the inclination, as well as the ability to do the work, to think Christianly about you, themselves, others, and this world. For the glory of Christ and the advance of his kingdom, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Have a great weekend.